We come back to the book of Romans. I believe that uh, in all of May, we have been away uh, from our study in Romans. So let's review where we are. We're in that section on the international defense of the gospel that runs from chapter 9, 10, and 11. And in this, we have seen already the tragedy of Israel as that was impacting the Apostle Paul as he prayed for them that God would save them, even if that meant setting Paul aside. We've seen largely in this section 6 through 29 God's sovereign freedom, but before we come to the end of chapter 9, we begin a different theme of human responsibility And then in chapter 11, we will see God's promises will be fulfilled. Now, as Paul is dealing with the Jewish part of the church and the Gentile part of the church, I think it is helpful for us to step back and remind ourselves that Paul recognizes the ethnic mix in the church at Rome. Romans 1 and verse 5, among all nations for his name, among whom also you are the called of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Verse 16, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. It's very plain that there is a strong contingent of Gentiles within that church. At the same time, he recognizes and greets several of his Jewish countrymen, Romans 16 and verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, we are told in the book of Acts, are Jews, 16, 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen. So there is this mix within the church. And we need to remind ourselves of something of the expanse of the Roman Empire based there in the boot as it comes down, not exactly in the center, but largely geographically, politically, culturally, Rome is at the center of things. And when we look at this map and see all the little nations that Rome has swallowed up. And then we think of this map with all of the Roman roads that lead to Rome and all of the shipping lanes of the Mediterranean that lead to Rome. We we can't think that this is just a Jew-Gentile and you got the Jews with their culture and then you've got the Gentiles with their culture and they're worshiping together in the same church. No, no, no. We need to think that here at Rome, the capital city, there is a representation of a whole lot of cultures there at Rome and likely reflected in the church. So Paul is promoting unity among this ethnic mix in the church at Rome. We have seen, we see again this morning, verse 16, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. There is one gospel 
And then in Romans 2, 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit. Jew and Gentile come to God. The true Christian is the same. Whatever the color of the skin is, whatever the DNA is, the most important thing is the spiritual DNA. Paul further promotes this unity by asking this question, Romans 3, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the uncircumcised, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Then 12, verse 12 of chapter 10, we're coming there. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. So what Paul is doing here in Romans 9 kind of fits back with one of his major goals in writing this book, and that is to promote unity. We don't have a Christian church at Rome for the Jews and a different Christian church for those who are from North Africa and a different church at Rome for those who are from Greek, formerly Greek colonies. There is one church Their foundation is their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we're looking at Romans 9, I want you to see where Paul goes in the unfolding of his thought. I am praying for this tragic situation of Israel hardening their heart in unbelief. I'm going to lay out in a detailed way God's absolute sovereignty, verse 6 through 29. And where does he go after that? Human responsibility. You want to know why the Jews have been set aside? It's because they would not do what God told them to do. They would not believe in God for him to provide a righteousness for them. Let's look back over this section of God's sovereign freedom. God works by election. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For all who are descended from Israel, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Sometimes rushing just makes it longer, doesn't it? Election. We see it Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and on down the line to Christ. God's purpose is mercy in verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Then we see the contrast here of Moses in God's mercy and God's hardening of Pharaoh. Then we come to God's wrath and God's mercy, where we've been most recently, verses 19 through 29. We only got to verse 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Very important for us to see our verses, human responsibility, following on the heels of someone saying, God can't hold me responsible because he's sovereign 
and what I'm doing is only the outworking of his will, so how can he find any fault with me? And Paul does not explain how divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit in the mind of God. And it's not so much that it fits comfortably in your mind or my mind. The important thing is for us as believers to see that it fits in the divine mind. And that is enough. He is absolutely sovereign. He is the one who takes from that same pile of sinful clay and makes one vessel for honor and another vessel for much less honorable use. Human responsibility. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, one last thing as we jump into the text. Notice Paul's definition of the church. Even us whom he has called. Even us whom he has called. Paul's going to talk about the Jew. He's going to talk about the Gentile. We all know that he's a Jew, but it's like he's not standing with the Jews in their physical DNA. He's saying, I stand with the church. That's who I am. It is my spiritual DNA. The next thing for us to just remind ourselves in this section that we're going through, see the pale yellow? That's all the Old Testament that we're looking at in these verses. So with that, come with me to see Roman numeral one, God's sovereign call of his multi-ethnic people. God's sovereign call of his multi-ethnic people. God's people come from all sorts of ethnicities. And first of all, we're seeing the reality. A, the reality of God's calling of his multi-ethnic church in verse 24. Paul lays out God's calling. We've already anticipated even us whom he has called. And what call is this? Well, there is the broad call of the invitation where the invitation goes out to everyone. All men everywhere are commanded to repent. But this call is what theologians refer to as the effectual call, that divine summons where he can speak of the church, Romans 1 and verse 7, those who are loved by God and called to be saints, powerfully brought into the realm of God's family. Like those sheriffs that are showing up at Bernie Madoff's house saying, you're going with us to court today. Similarly, God has come by his spirit and says, you're coming into God's family this day. Further, we see not only this emphasis of calling, but he defines the church as those whom God calls, 
from the Jews and the Gentiles. The even us. Not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He defines himself as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a believing church member. And this is important for us. Sometimes we feel like the only people that I can fellowship with are those believers who are within two and a half years of my age. So if I'm a teen that I can only talk to, I can only have fellowship with those who are in my bracket. If I've gone through some struggle in life, I've gone through a divorce, the only people who understand me I define myself as a divorced individual, and so my circle of fellowship needs to be divorced individuals. And the devil can bring up all sorts of categories, but please have in your mind that Roman Empire, all those various ethnicities, and they are in one church. They are not defined by a particular trial. They are not defined by their ethnicity, but they are in this one body together, and so are you and I, and we need all of us here together. And I bless God, not that it was a conscious thing at all, but when Nancy and I were just moving to Anderson, Indiana after college, and this would be when we're about 21 years of age, our closest friends in the church were retired and in their 60s. What you have to talk about? Everything. And it gave us a wonderful perspective on life to be talking to these dear Christians now in heaven over their experiences in their walk with God. Paul defines the church as those that God has called from the Gentiles, from the Jews, but as well We might ask ourselves the question as we come and look at Hosea about the inclusion of the Gentiles and say, Paul, couldn't you have picked a plainer passage from the Old Testament? And we might even suggest one. Genesis 12. Where all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham's seed. That's fairly explicit. But I want to remind myself and remind you that Paul has already done that. His letter to the Galatians was written perhaps almost 10 years prior to the book of Romans. And there in Galatians 3 and verse 9, uh, Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that the gospel that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel before and to Abraham saying in you all the nations 
will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of God. Paul is very much aware of that plainer passage that he's earlier taught on, and perhaps he is assuming they've already seen the letter to the Galatians and had it read to them. And so now he is building on it, and he is supplementing what he has given earlier, the reality of God's calling. Now, secondly, B, the illustration, the Old Testament illustration of God's sovereign call from Hosea. Hosea marries a woman called Gomer. One is written regarding the book of Hosea. It's hard to imagine many believers jumping at the chance to live out Hosea's personal and prophetic calling. I mean, if surrendering one's life to God and fulfilling the lonely duties of an Old Testament prophet wasn't hard enough, Hosea might hold the title of having one of the most unique and difficult callings in all of Scripture. Instructed by God to minister to a confused and unfaithful people in a time of moral decline, Hosea was also told to marry an unfaithful woman, Gomer, and remain faithful to her while she continued to be unfaithful to Hosea, her husband. However, while the life of Hosea served as an illustration of God's faithfulness and committed love for his people in the midst of their unfaithfulness. Hosea, I need you to preach, and I need you to be an object lesson of how God can come and be faithful. So that's the context of uh, Hosea and these quotes. They have three children together. Jezreel, a son, God will sow. Lo Ruhama, no mercy. Lo Ami, not my people, a second son. And so we've already read Hosea 1 and seen something of the context. But there is that place where God says to the nation, the northern tribes of Israel, you have so abandoned me that I'm going to deal with you as a nation as no mercy and not my people. Yet, Paul is going to quote from Hosea 1 and verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, uh, uh, they are children of the, loving, of the living God. And then Hosea 2. In Hosea 2, they've sinned away God. This passage is like Ephesians 2 dead in their trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy with his great love with which he has loved us. So Hosea is like that. I will betroth you to me forever, even though you don't deserve it. And in verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy 
uh, no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. If you think about this a little more, both it appears that both Hosea and Gomer had Abrahamic DNA in them. They are Jewish. So how can Paul use this verse to speak about the Gentile inclusion? Well, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but here's the point. There is a group that is called, no, you're so bad, no mercy is going to be wasted on you. And here's this people, they are not my people. And God can sovereignly, in his mercy, decide, you know what, generations later, I can bring some of these back to me. And so that's why Paul chooses to quote Hosea to point out that here is this inclusion into the kingdom by the God of sovereign power. And what does that say to us? Well, I wonder if one of you is witnessing to someone who you kind of think deserves the name of no mercy. Maybe there's someone in your extended family that is kind of like, not my people. We don't know who it is that God is going to save. And we go on witnessing faithfully. We go on praying faithfully with confidence that the God who sits on the throne above the heavens is able to come to no mercy and show great mercy to no mercy. And take him or her who is not my people and bring them in. May God encourage us in our witness. So Roman number one, God's sovereign calling. Roman numeral two, God's sovereign salvation of a remnant of, of physical Israel. Here we see A, the Lord's coming judgment. This is verse 28 of Romans 9. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. God is using Assyria as the rod of God's anger, and he's going to punish Israel. And Paul's main thought in this verse is something of the certainty and the efficiency with which God is going to judge. He has it in Romans 8, Romans 9, verse 28, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And he's reflecting on something that Isaiah wrote. God is going to accomplish this. And what you and I need to learn from those periodic judgments, a judgment like the flood going over the earth and God saving eight individuals, of all of humanity, that when God says he's going to judge, he will judge. And when God warns Israel over the course of a hundred years that you need to repent, get rid of your idolatry, 
or I'm going to pick you up and take you away from your land. And when God says that, then he does it. And when God says that at the end of time, Jesus Christ is going to break through the clouds with great glory, and it's going to lead into this great general judgment in which Jesus Christ is going to judge men and send these to eternal destruction and bring these to himself, we need to know that God is going to do that. The Lord's coming judgment. Secondly, B, the Lord's sovereign distinction. Isaiah cries out, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Only a remnant. And here is Paul's point. Not every physical Jew is going to believe in Christ. Not every one of them is going to be converted. So you can't, you guys got to get rid of this automatic thing. Oh, if I do a test, I can prove that I have Abraham's DNA in me. And everything is right with me. No, that's not the issue at all, Paul says. There is only a remnant a small group, if we think of a large circle of Israel as a nation at this point, it's only a very small number that is going to be delivered. The rest is in the, uh, the rest will be judged. And if all Israel was going to be saved, then Paul couldn't say this. The bulk is going to be swept away in judgment, but he makes a sovereign distinction in saving some. And that's why this verse fits in Romans chapter 9. Thirdly, see, the Lord's granting a spiritual seed. Now verse 29 of Romans 9. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Can you imagine how a Jew hearing this or reading this would feel? What's Sodom and Gomorrah known for? Well, they are known for their blatant immorality, particularly that of a gross homosexuality. And they are also known for a fire falling from heaven and totally destroying them so that archaeologists could go over in that area and say, well, I think Sodom was here. No, I think... There's not really enough left. That's what it's known for. So Paul comes to the Jews of his day and he says, unless God had sovereignly been at work in us at a nation, no one would be saved. We'd all be like Sodom. We'd all be like Gomorrah. We'd be that immoral. And we would be destroyed. Unless God had left us a seed. So how does God intervene? He gives a seed. A spiritual seed. It's interesting, in the Hebrew, it is survivors. Only a few survivors. If God hadn't given us a few survivors, 
uh, Paul goes along with the Greek translation, a seed. But whichever word we use, the one in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, that's translated from the Hebrew, remnant, survivors, seed, they all point to what? Here's this great big number of the Jews as the sand of the sea, and there are a few that are being saved in the sovereignty of God. Seed. Why did Paul use seed instead of survivors? Well, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. He's talking with spiritual seed. Seed and offspring and sperma here in Romans 9.29 takes us back to Romans 9 and verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. And it seems that what Paul and the Spirit are doing is taking this lengthy paragraph, verse 6, all the way down to 29, starting out with a conversation here about offspring and about seed, and concluding this whole section on the sovereignty of God with this reference. And notice with me now where he goes. In Romans 9 and verse 19, I tried to highlight this on the screen, but let me say it again. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And before, in verse 19, verse 20, the way that Paul deals with that answer, with that objection, God can't hold us responsible, is for Paul to make an... Who are you to talk back to God? Whatever God sets up in his dealing of the universe... It's what God has set up in his plans for the universe. But now as we come to verse 30, there is a bit more of an explanation that is given. And so see as we make this transition, Romans 9, verse 6 to 29, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. And then in verse 30, man is responsible. This brings us to Roman numeral three. Man's responsibility to believe as God directs. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Surely you can't hold us responsible, God. And Paul may not answer all of the questions that we may have of how divine divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit together. But he tells us they do fit together. Here's the one, and here's the other. And I want you to see 
that this human responsibility follows so closely on the heels of divine sovereignty. It'll give us a wonderful balance in our understanding of this truth. So notice with me, A, Israel's failure comes through works righteousness. This is verse 32. They did not succeed in reaching the principle of having a righteousness on works. And why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The Jews have received all of that Old Testament revelation. The Jews have been in the line of Abraham, who had that Abrahamic covenant made with him, where God told him to split the animals, and God, as, the, as that burning torch passes down through the pieces of the animals, saying, if I don't save according to my purpose, then let me be like this. Think of all their sacrifices. Can you name them? It's a good thing I'm not an Old Testament priest. I can't even name all the sacrifices. Can you explain them? Well, give me an hour and I'll do my best. Their whole life as a people was so that they could be right with God. And yet, they went about it in the wrong way, and so they weren't right with God. What a a tragedy. All of that revelation, all of those sacrifices to point to the doing and the dying of another sacrifice, and they missed it. Because they thought, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as this one over here. And they thought that they could work their way to heaven. And so what Paul is doing here, he's getting ready to go back to this, the contrast of works and of faith. And it's Romans 10 and verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They live for being right with God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Is there any relevance for us today? Well, some say all roads lead to God. And all roads lead to God, lead to heaven. As long as you are sincere, God will take that and count it for merit. If you are generally a good person, then God will not set you aside. But what does God say here concerning these? They've made it their great goal to have a righteousness before God, and they utterly failed. 
because they didn't go about it as God told them to go about it. Let's move on to B. Gentile success comes through faith. Now we'll back up to verse 30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. Here are the Jews and and, and they're the line of Abraham and they've got all the Old Testament scriptures coming to them. And here are these pagans who are living in the darkness of their futility. They're not even thinking about God, the bulk of them. They're more interested in their variations of immorality than they are about pleasing God. But when the Gentiles do begin to think about God, they must not try to work their way to heaven. Turn back, if you would, in your Bible to Romans 3 and verse 21. You see how this... Paul is not going to let go of what he's already established in the book of Romans. Universal condemnation. The Jews are condemned by the law. The Gentiles are combined by the law. And every mouth is shut and under the condemnation of God. But Romans 3 and verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is a righteousness that belongs to God, that belongs specifically to the God-man Jesus Christ. And the way that you get that is taking all of your good works and putting them in a pile and walking away and say, Jesus... I need your help to be saved. And if you flip over to Romans 5 and verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified, we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're coming to the table of remembrance this evening. It's a time when we are to examine ourselves. And I expect, if I'm anything like you, that in that process of examining ourselves, that we will find some stuff that we really are not too proud of. And it makes us sick. And how can I be a part of this table of remembrance and then we remember I'm not justified on the basis of my perfection. I am justified on the basis of Jesus' perfection. And what a wonderful privilege to know that I am justified by faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone. Thirdly, see, Isaiah's prophetic pointer to Jesus Christ latter part of verse 32. They have stumbled over their stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
bits of two passages are pulled together. Some from Isaiah 8, 14, about this stumbling stone that destroys. And 24, 16, about a cornerstone that if you believe in this, if you stand on this, if you build on this, you will not be ashamed. Isaiah 8 is the one that speaks of a rock of a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling and a trap and a snare. Now, none of those sound good. When someone sets a snare, what do they intend to do? Well, most likely they're intending to catch that animal, kill that animal, and eat it, which doesn't sound like a very pleasant end. So here is a stone of offense. It is a rock of stumbling, And the modifiers along with it there are that of a trap and of a snare. So with the figure of running a race, and maybe you've seen this, guys going over the high hurdles, they catch a foot and they go sprawling out there on the track. They're not winning the race. They're done. But the picture here is a little different. The picture here is a stone. It's not that you're running on a a cushioned racetrack. It's like you're up on a, a mountain ridge. And you go along, and if you get into a fight with those rocks up there on that mountain ridge, you're going to lose, and you're going to lose big time. And I think that's the picture. Our second passage that he quotes, Isaiah 28 And verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who's laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. So here's a very different kind of rock. It's a rock that has already been chiseled, and it's made perfectly square and perfectly level. It's been tested. It's proven. And you can build on it. We're going to start our foundation. We're going to build a temple. And we're going to put the cornerstone right there, and then we're going to take all the other stones, and as long as we are oriented to that stone, it's going to be a good building. And it's very interesting that the Apostle Peter picks up on these same two figures. And I invite you for our closing passage to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, and I'll begin reading at verse 4 as you're turning there, but we're going to see two different stones, two different kinds of stones. Verse 4, as you come to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor... In verse 7, 
is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. And this passage is wonderful because it points out that Jesus is two kinds of stones. If you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will build your life on him, then Jesus is like that great and valuable cornerstone. You can build your life on him and be safe and be blessed. But if you won't do that, then Jesus Christ becomes a stone of stumbling and it's like you're running up there on the top of the mountain ridge and the rocks give way and you're down at the bottom and the rest of the hill is on top of you. What kind of stone is Jesus Christ to you this morning? Is Jesus Christ that large, tested proven, chosen, and loved of God's stone that you can comfortably come to him and say, he's my maker, he's my redeemer, he's the boss of my life, and I'm going to build my life on him. Everything I do is going to come out from that cornerstone. Or do you reject him? I got no time for God. Then the picture is you're up on that mountain ridge and judgment is going to come. God is sovereign. See it with all the Old Testament examples He's given. And you are responsible. You may not be able to put it together. You don't need to. God's already put it together here in Romans 9. God's absolute sovereignty, and you and I are responsible. You may not understand all of the inner workings and how this and that, but you know this. You know that Jesus Christ came, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death there on that Roman cross, And he offers himself to any and to all. And he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe in him. And that's what you've got to do. And if you will not, have Jesus as the valuable cornerstone that you build your life on. Then Jesus will become a stone of stumbling a rock of offense, a snare, a trap, and you will be destroyed. How can God find fault? Well, with the Jews, they did not do what God told them to do. Please do what Jesus urges you to do. Let's pray.
Father, you stretch our minds by laying out here in Romans 9 how you deal with individuals and how you deal with nations. You've made it abundantly plain that you are absolutely sovereign. But you've also made it plain and made it plain right here in this passage that though you are absolutely sovereign, we are responsible before you. We need to hear you speaking to us. We need to see the value of your son making the offer of free forgiveness through his merits, and we need to act on that. Father, we pray that you would take away this morning works righteousness thinking from us. And we know it's deeply ingrained in our sinful hearts and help us to look away to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We pray these things in Christ's name.